I always show characters loving others and being loved by others because nothing is more relatable on a core base level than to love somebody or to be loved by somebody. That is so important and powerful. thinking the podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love i'm your host dana goldstein and i invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories well hello everybody welcome to another new episode of what were you thinking this one's going to be a little bit different than what you are normally used to. First of all, there's not going to be a lot of asides for me. There's a few, but not too many. And that's because this really weird thing happened when I was interviewing today's guest. And the interview started kind of awkwardly because I was just gushing over him because his writing is truly beautiful and poetic. There's not a lot of asides because he's truly a storyteller at heart. And all I had to do was ask him one question and he would just answer that question and then intuitively answer the next question before I even got to ask it. So it was kind of weird and and it was a really new experience for me. But anyways, Jeff Sentner. His latest book is called In the Wild Light. He has this innate ability to capture the pulse of teenage life all the fears the concerns the victories the struggles i just i can't say enough wonderful things about his books you're going to want to stick with this episode right through to the end because what he says and how he says it will stir your soul let's go jeff zentner wow um how can i do this without like being ridiculously overwhelmingly gushing your writing is beautiful and thank you and I think it's super important for people to know your writer journey because you have not been a full-time writer uh you've had an incredibly colorful journey if you could share that with us like right from law school or before yeah yeah well okay so um let me start before um, my creative life began as a musician. I was a songwriter, guitarist, singer. I had bands. I did solo work. Uh, you know, I released a, a couple albums with a band and then a few solo albums. And uh, I had a really good time with that. I really love music. I put put all of myself into it. Uh, and, and I did that right up until uh, I, I hit my early 30s, right? And when I hit my early 30s, I had this kind of uh, revelation, I guess, uh, realization that people don't really tend to make it big in music after age 30, right? You, you can be big in music after age 30, to be sure, but you have to have gotten your big break before age 30, right? You don't turn on the radio and hear somebody with their first big single at age 34, right? So... Um, that made me think, okay, well, if if I ever want to create art professionally and, and hopefully make it 
my livelihood, or at least a significant part thereof, I, uh, it's not going to be through music. I, you know, I guess, I guess my, my dream of living as a professional artist is done, not going to happen. So uh, I start volunteering at a music camp for teenagers called Tennessee Teen Rock Camp and, and one specifically for girls called Southern Girls Rock Camp. And I was teaching music to teenagers, specifically rock music, how, teaching teenagers how to be rock musicians. And I really fell in love with the experience. And it wasn't um, so much the teaching part as the young adults themselves. I really loved the way that the young adults I was teaching and interacting with how they loved the art that they loved. There's a, a really special relationship you form with the art that you love when you're a young adult. You you allow it to be a saving grace in your life. You you allow it to move you in ways that I think um, we grow hardened to as, as adults. We don't make ourselves quite as vulnerable for anything, much less the art that we love when we're adults. Um, some of us do, and I, I think it's a real gift to be able to maintain that openness. It's sort of like how some adults really keep that childlike imagination well into adulthood, where a lot of other adults just kind of kind of lose it, um, which is a bummer to me. Um, <laughs> but I really loved these young adults and I wanted to create art for them. Uh, and I was then left with a real dilemma, which is how do I do that? Because at that point that I'm having this realization, I'm like, 35, 36 years old. So I'm well past the cutoff to make music for a wide audience in general, right? But for teenagers specifically, I'm so far past that. I mean, the kind of music that gets made for, marketed to, and consumed by teenagers, it's being made by people in, in their early to mid-20s. I mean, let's face it. So I'm way, way off. Music is absolutely not going to be the route for me to take to make art for, for young adults to love and consume. So I basically have a choice at this point. I can either A, just walk away and, you know, live the rest of my days with this hunger, with this, oh, wouldn't that have been neat if, wouldn't that have been cool if, and just die hungry. Or I could... Uh, upend my life at that point i'm uh you know i've got a kid a family working a full-time job as as an attorney as a prosecutor for the state of tennessee with all of those obligations and and um demands on my time i can try to go out and find a new artistic discipline that i can somehow master well enough to get it into the hands of young adults with the limited time I have, and, and that will allow me to reach young adults. Is there something out there that exists like that? Um, and obviously, just from that description, I hope it conveys what a daunting thing this was to look at, to imagine. So I start looking around, what can I do to make art for young adults? And I land on books. I notice See, I've always paid attention to the world of books. Uh, I was I worked at bookstores in uh high school and college, always been a great book lover. And I've always kind of paid attention to the world of books. And, and I noticed that there's this big new category of books called young adult books, right? And so it occurs to me, hey, young adults might read young adult books. 
Okay, so we've got this whole category of books specifically marketed to this audience I want to reach. Here's the other realization I had. You don't have to be a kid to write books. You don't have to be a young, you know, under 30. Authors get their starts much later in life. Uh, Toni Morrison published her first book when she was 39. Um, Norman McLean, who wrote A River Runs Through It, great movie with Brad Pitt. 72 when he published that volume of stories. And I think that was the first work of fiction he ever published at age 72. Hey, just want to pop in here with somebody else I need you to know about. If you haven't already listened to episode two of the first season of this podcast, you'll want to go back and listen to that. That's when I talked to Michelle Good, author of Five Little Indians. And she published that book when she was 65 years old and started racking up the awards she won the governor's general award she won amazon first novel the list is very long so my point is you can be an emerging writer at any age so i was comfortably within the the age range to look at publishing books so i thought to myself well maybe i can publish a book for young adults or books for young adults maybe that's my path. And hey, that would be good too, because I love books. Um, just that I didn't really know what I was doing. I've never had a creative writing class, never thought up until that point of writing novels. It just didn't seem like something that people like me did. I really grew up never having any interaction with authors, not, not understanding what kind of people wrote books. I grew up in, in a pre-internet age before you could go on Instagram and see what profoundly normal people authors are. So if you love books like I did, you tend to put authors on a pedestal and just assume that they're these lofty people who are way above you. So um, so it, it took me a while to get over that psychological barrier. Um, but the the failure of my musical career, and, and I call it a failure uh, kind of facetiously, I do, I do feel like I had some small successes. I feel satisfied with what I did, but I, I refer to it facetiously as a failure. My failed musical career um, was very freeing in a way, in as much as that it gave me the freedom to feel like I could try things and fail because it sort of cracked the seal on failure. If I try to write a book, and fail, I'm no worse off. See, I'm already a failure because I failed at music, right? So I can now do things and fail, and I won't be any worse off. I'll just, just add it to the stack of failures. So I decided to try to write a book. So I came up with some characters um, that I had been thinking about in some form or another for many years in, in songs they had been manifesting themselves, kind of speaking to me. Um, I came up with a way to fit those characters into sort of a plot structure, uh, into sort of a milieu that was interesting to me. And then I started to kind of meditate on these characters because I knew I wasn't going to be able to just write a book where I told characters about their lives. I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that, but I figured maybe I can write a book where characters tell me about their lives and uh, I write it down. I act as like a recorder, a scribe. And so I just incubate for months with these characters in my head until they're really talking to me and telling me their story and I feel ready to write their story down. Uh, and then I started to write the book. And the way I did that was with the time that I had in the day, which was not much. It was 
uh, about an hour long commute by bus each way from my house to downtown Nashville. So I would get out my phone, kind of like this one, and I would write on my phone to and from work with my right thumb. So most of uh, my my first book, The Serpent King, here, I wrote with my right thumb on the bus to and from work. Uh, and ultimately, long story short, I ended up getting a book deal, uh, two-book deal. I wrote my second book, Goodbye Days, with my right thumb on the phone to and from work. Did the same with my third book, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee, and most of my fourth book, although... Um, the pandemic kind of got in the way there and I started working from home and I work from home now. I do still have a day job, uh, no longer a prosecutor. I work for the Tennessee State Park System, which is a, a lovely job and I absolutely adore it. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of where, where my writing career, uh, how it came to be. So you answered like almost all the questions. So we're done here. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, it's amazing to me that you, you wrote your books on your phone on the bus, but I, I understand that compulsion. Like when your characters are so loud, you cannot wait. You have to, whatever tools we have at hand, that's what we have to use to get their stories down. I read that you spent an enormous amount of time in the library as a kid. So high five, because yep. I did the same. So how did you develop your voice and your remarkable talent for, for writing for the young adult age group? So part of it is, is observation. I'm, I'm a pretty keen observer. Um, I, I look really carefully and I study the way people behave and I'm very conscious not to overlay the behavior of fictional characters with how I think they should behave or how I want them to behave. Um, I'm, I'm very careful when I come to the page to leave behind my baggage and the lenses through which I view the world and say, no, wait a minute. You know, much as I would love for teenagers to be listening to all the music I listened to as a teenager, they don't. And yeah. here's what I observe them listening to. Um, and, and I think if you can, if you can be humble enough to look outside yourself and really observe without those lenses on and your own baggage, then you can, uh, create a close approximation of reality. Another thing too, and, and I think I share this with most, if not all young adult writers is I have a very keen memory of what it was like to inhabit the emotional space of teenagedom. Now, everything else, terrible memory. I can't remember what classes I took in high school. I can't remember the names of any of my teachers. I can't remember any of that stuff. But to remember what it felt like to be a teenager, I remember that very clearly. I remember the intellect I had as a teenager. I remember the intellect of my friends. Um, I hung with a pretty witty group of kids. I could hang out with these kids today and they would make me laugh. They would be interesting. They would be vibrant. They would converse with wit and energy and, and aliveness. And that's what I try to bring to the teen dialogue. I can't begin 
to to claim to be up on on teenage slang. I have a 13 year old son, and sometimes you know I spy on his text conversations because <laughs> I'm a parent and I need to be you know monitoring the phone to make sure you know nothing untoward is going on. Uh, and he's just you know dropping slang in these text conversations that I've never heard before, and and that's the point of teenage slang. It's designed to be impenetrable to adults. By the time it percolates up into the consciousness of adults, they've moved on by necessity. So I don't try to reproduce teenage slang. Um, there are a few um, slang words that have stuck, you know, cool, chillin', you know, those kinds of things. Um, those have stuck, and so I use those. But for the most part, I don't try to reproduce teen slang. What I try to do is reproduce the energy of teen dialogue the 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 wit okay the the striving to use words that are bigger than you understand the the constant drive to talk about things that are important and to deconstruct the world and to and to feel like your conversations matter all of that i bring to teen dialogue and i feel like and i've been told that it results in a in a reasonably close facsimile to the way teenagers speak. I read The Serpent King. That wasn't the first book. I started with um, In the Wild Light. And then oh, I went, okay. yeah, and then I, I worked backwards or all over the map. So started a lot with, of and, a lot of readers have, have done that. I've noticed yeah, started yeah. within the wild light and worked yeah. their way back. Which yeah. Is and then I went to The Serpent King. And then I just finished um, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee this weekend. And oh, you are your skill at creating this closed in teenage world like I I felt with every book you write I feel completely sucked into that teenage world and I remember like you it's remarkable how keenly you capture that world because even though the world has changed since we were teenagers the problems are still somewhat the same and the emotions it's human emotion right sure absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what was your journey to publication like with The Serpent King? Like, how did you find, did you have an agent? Did you find an agent? How did that work? For anyone listening here who's wondering, uh, you know, do I need an agent? I would say absolutely yes. My agent got me over 10 times for my, for The Serpent King, what I would have gladly accepted from a publisher. 10 times. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. It is 10. No, actually... 15 times, um, if I'm doing my math right. Um, so yes, I had an agent. So here's how that worked. Um, and, and there's a lot of ways to get agents, but but here's the way I got mine. Uh, I handed my manuscript to a friend to read. This friend of mine had an agent. She was already represented uh, based on an article she wrote for Salon.com uh, about her kind of tumultuous marriage to a famous rock drummer. And my agent had seen that article and had contacted her about writing a memoir about that experience. So she already had this agent and I handed it to her to read and um, give me feedback and critique on. And she got about a chapter in and she said, you know what? I think my agent would really like this. Do you mind if I pass it along to him? And I was like, uh, sure. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Because I know that querying can be kind of an arduous process. Um, and so she handed it off 
to her agent and I got a call from him about a week later saying, hey, Jeff, uh, I love the Serpent King. I would love to talk with you about this. And during that call, he offered representation. So um, that was very exciting. This is Charlie Olson from Inkwell Management, phenomenal agent. Um, we got lined up together in April of 2014, worked together ever since. I officiated his wedding uh, <laughs> this last year. Uh, actually, no, it was this year, earlier this year, um, which was absolutely lovely. So we have just had a wonderful working relationship. He just sold my fifth book to a publisher, and we're going to go on submission in a few days with um, what I hope will be my sixth book, which is uh, actually written for the adult market. So oh. fingers crossed. We'll see yeah. what happens with that. But anyway, so I get this agent. Um, the agent starts shopping it around to publishers. And before long, there are five publishers who are interested. So there is an auction for the rights. And um, the winner of the auction is Crown Books for Young Readers, a random house imprint that had just recently reopened after being shuttered for, for many years. Um, so that's who, who published my first four books. Um, now, I will say for anybody listening to this who has had to endure rejection, that while there were five editors who were interested enough in The Serpent King to bid against each other for it, there were 11 editors who didn't want it at all for various reasons. Some just weren't doing books with young male protagonists. Some just didn't think it was good. They just didn't didn't like it, didn't didn't think it was good enough to pay money for, um, while five editors thought it was good enough to compete with other editors for. So that really is, is emblematic, I think, of how subjective art is and how completely you can, failure is a constant, failure is a constant in, in publishing, in life, and you just have to pick yourself up and move forward from it. Yeah, there's this idea that with every book it's it's like a sure thing but it never is no not at all right while I was doing my research um I kind of lost track of the numerous numerous awards you have received did you like how does it feel every time you get an email that's like hey Jeff you got another award I mean it feels incredible it feels it feels really really good um, you know, there, there's no amount of awards that can save you from the bad days where you run across a bad review and somebody's like, I just didn't like this book. I thought it was stupid. And it's like, you know, it, it, it just gets you still. Um, but no, it's, it's an incredible feeling. And what makes it, what makes it even better is most of these awards, uh, for young adult, come from panels of English teachers and librarians. Um, and, and it was English teachers and librarians who really started me on my reading journey and fostered my reading journey. And, and that gives me a lot of hope that my books might end up being part of somebody's reading journey. And that in, in you know, 20 years from now, somebody's going to publish a book and, and be talking in interviews about how, you know, reading The Serpent King made them want to become a writer or something like that. That's that's my great hope. That more than big financial success, whatever. I, you know, I still work that day job. All those awards have not added up to uh, enough 
money, renown, what have you to quit the day job. There's a lot of authors out there who who do a lot better than I do. But ultimately, I, I hope those awards mean that I'm making some sort of impact and that I'm reaching people. It it does mean to me that I'm I'm writing in a way I want I want to write. I love the books that won awards when I was a kid. I've heard librarians say that the surest way to get get a kid not to read a book is to put a gold award seal on the cover. <laughs> uh, and I believe that. I think that's probably right. Um, but not me. When I was a kid, I I loved those books with the gold award seal on the cover. I sought them out. They they felt special to me, just like they felt special to the awards committee. So they were a part of my reading journey. So I hope there's a kid like me out there who's who's seeking out these these books of mine. Well, I'd say you definitely left a mark permanently because the number of people who tattoo their bodies with quotes, <laughs> I think they're primarily from the Serpent King, right? I've I think never mostly, like, yeah, yeah may, I don't know, is my world so narrow? Like, I've never seen so many people put quotes on their bodies from a living current author. The odd, uh, the odd, uh, you know, the, the literary tattoos tend to be like long dead writers, long dead. Yeah, I mean, how, yeah. How, like, yeah. Like does that? I, it has to blow your mind. It it does. Uh, I'm sure. By the way, Neil Gaiman has me beat. Um, oh but, yeah. Um, but there's been there's been a fair number, and it is it's awesome. It is it's it's an awesome responsibility. It tells me um, I got to behave myself as a human being. I don't want to embarrass these people. <laughs> I got to be a can't can't turn racist. Got to be I got to be a good human being. I'm not just not racist because uh, I, I'm going to embarrass people with tattoos of mine. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, it's it's a real responsibility. It's it's weighty and it 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 does weigh on me. And I think about that a lot. And um, it, it tells me that that I've got a responsibility to continue my creative life with with integrity and with with honor. And I mean, it's just blows my mind. It really does. It is, it is very, very moving to me and make no mistake. Um, you, you don't have to tattoo my words on, on your body <laughs> to, to have, to, to instill that feeling in me, like a really good email does the same thing for me. Um, but it's, it's so very meaningful to me and it really is, is quite moving. So some of the words people write in reviews or online in social media about your work is soul destroying, cried for days, <laughs> changed my life, uh, heart, heart, heart crunching. Like it's, I, I get it. Like having read three of your books, I completely get it. How, like, where does that skill come from is it something you have to really work at or is it just like uh, as as somebody who has read your books I hear the songwriter and you coming out because there's poetry in those words but that that crushing emotion are you doing that to us on purpose (laughs) well I guess I guess so I'm what I'm asking you to do is to to believe that these characters are real people and and to to feel them as deeply as I feel them and to understand their lives as deeply as I understand them. And I think maybe what that comes from is I always approached these stories knowing these characters very well. They have become real people in my mind by the time I ever get to the page. I don't write a word 
until those characters are real three-dimensional people in my mind. And I, I think maybe that makes a difference. You know, I think it, I think readers can feel that on some level. The other, I've got, I've got a few other tricks um, that I, that I do. I always show characters loving others and being loved by others because nothing is more relatable on a core base level than to love somebody or to be loved by somebody. That is so important and powerful that if I can show that early on, I try to show it early on, then you're going to forge a connection with those characters. I read so many books where I'm like, I couldn't tell you the name of a single person this character loved, you know? And I I, I want you to end all of my books being able to say who every character loved and who loved them, right? So that makes a difference. So when we see characters loving and being loved, we love them. And when we love them, we're invested in their story. And then whatever happens to them will naturally affect us more. Here's another little trick. I just write a lot of dialogue. I write a ton mm. of dialogue. My books are very dialogue heavy, um, which is funny because I used to be terrified to write dialogue, just mortified of it. When I when I first started practicing writing, I wrote a few little short stories and there was no dialogue <laughs> whatsoever in them. I, I read Jim Harrison's Legends of the Fall um, and there's not a line of dialogue in that novella, not a single line of dialogue. Uh, and I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Um, but I was missing out on a really wonderful opportunity to let my readers hear my characters' voices and thus forge a connection with them. I think we we forge a connection with people whose voices we hear. I feel like I know you, Dana, so much better now than when we were just interacting over Gmail, you know, setting up this podcast interview. Now I've heard your voice. I, I feel like I know you so much better. And dialogue is how you let your readers hear the voices of your characters and get to know them better. And the more you get to know characters, the more you feel invested in their outcomes. And it's easy to follow who's saying what because their dialogue is so voicey, so to speak. And um, and another thing, uh, as you as you mentioned that, um, one more trick is I try to keep the universe small. I don't, I get lost reading books where, you know, in the first three pages, we've got nine characters introduced <laughs> and so many names. I'm yeah. just, I'm not a sophisticated reader that way. I can't keep them straight. And so I try to give you just a few names, two, maybe three to keep track of. And that's who our world is going to be. That's that's going to be the focus. And that's who you can get invested in because people can't invest in nine people. So if you give them nine people to invest in, they won't pick one or two to get invested in. They won't invest in anybody. But if you give people one, two, three people to invest in, they'll invest in them. I love personally every now and then diving into a deep epic novel, but I'll be candid. When I see that there's a multiple family trees at the front of the book, I'm a little nervous. Yeah, I'm looking at you, George R. R. Martin. Quite honestly, I tried to read Game of Thrones, but until the HBO series, I couldn't keep anybody straight. Watching the series and then reading the book helped me identify who was who. Because I don't know it's if I daunting. can keep track. It's, it's daunting. It totally is. Yep. It's a remarkable skill to be able to write that many characters and make every voice completely distinct. 
I could never do it. I, I don't even want to try. You said that characters evolve into 3D people in your mind. What does that feel like? What What is that? Yeah, it's it's exhilarating. I mean, it's it's kind of a godlike feeling to bring beings into existence, to call intelligences out of of the ether, out of the darkness into being. It it feels godlike, honestly, and and it's it is it, it's such a wonderful way to immerse yourself in in imagination. I'll sometimes go kayaking, and I'll be out on the river for hour hour and a half just dwelling with these characters and letting them talk to each other and listening to their conversations. And it's so immersive and meditative. I don't know if there's some, you know, I don't know if it functions in the same way that meditation does, but it, man, when I get done doing it, I feel good. It is a really, really nice feeling when I'm done. You spend a lot of time in nature. I see your photo, your forest bathing is yeah awesome yeah. <laughs> i love the i'm gonna maybe mispronounce it but the the hot the hot autumn yes <laughs> yep yep for for people listening to this who don't know what that means i have arbitrary i am an autumn lover i have arbitrarily decided because we live in an age of global warming when if you're waiting for temperature to signal the onset of autumn in where I live in, in the southern U.S. in Nashville, you could be waiting until mid-November before you're really getting autumn weather. And then you've got like three weeks of autumn and then it's Christmas time, which is a distinct cultural season. So if you want autumn, you got to make autumn happen. And if you're going to make autumn happen, why not carve off a little bit of summer and turn that into autumn? So I call the season from August 15th to uh, September 30th, autumn. And that is like pre-autumn, that's pre-gaming autumn. And then September 30th through like Thanksgiving, that's autumn, autumn. And then you're into Christmas time. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do. And I start decorating for autumn around August 15th, burning my autumn candles. And you know what? If you look at my Instagram, I take pictures as proof. Leaves are changing yeah. color and falling now. It yeah. is not crazy to call this time of year autumn. So forest bathing, for people who don't know what it is, can you explain what it is for you? Well, um, so so I'm sure there's more to this than, than I know, um, but apparently the Japanese have a concept and I couldn't begin to tell you the Japanese word for it, but the concept is forest bathing. And um, as I understand it, it is just what it sounds like. You go out into the forest and you bathe in the forest and you take in the forest and being around those trees and breathing in that wonderful oxygen that you get in a forest and taking in that wonderful light that's been filtered through uh, hundreds of leaves. It, it does something to you. It changes you in a way. Uh, it gives you a, a stronger sense of well-being. It makes you feel healthy and calm and peaceful and all of those things. And so... Uh, I'm very big on that. I like to be, I like to be out in the woods. I, I like to be out in nature. Um, so yeah, it, and, and again, maybe I'm butchering the formal concept of, of forest bathing, but that's what forest bathing means to me. Whatever it really is, I have made it into something that is a, a very um, uh, pleasing uh, thing that adds to my well-being and happiness. How do you start a new project? 
Like, and I, I know that you need time for the characters to sort of form in your mind, but what's the transition between I, I might have an idea for a new novel to actually getting the writing done? The first thing is an idea or a character, a situation where a character has to grab me. And I have to not stop thinking about that character or situation. And it can come out of the blue. For example, I visited the Puppetry Museum in Atlanta, Georgia. There's a puppetry museum. And it is really, really cool. They have original Sesame Street puppets, original Muppet Show puppets, puppets from Star Wars. It is a really cool museum. And while I was at that museum a couple years ago, I just started to feel that tug, that pull, that there's a story in here somewhere. So um, I started thinking about a story and um, and it's eventually it's taken shape in my mind to a story about a, um, a group of puppeteers in 1970s New York that were kind of not rivals, but they were like a lesser known version of Jim Henson's workshop. And I want to set a story among those puppeteers because while I was at this puppetry museum, I was so fascinated by the gentleness and the wonder of, of these puppets and, and how they moved me to see these, these puppets who had been part of my life, part of my upbringing that close was, was really moving. I was like weeping at this museum. And so it made me fascinated in the kind of people who create this kind of art. Cause it's not glamorous art, right? Nobody's, you know, nobody's out there getting chicks because they're a puppeteer, right? That's not a thing. You're not a rock star when you're a puppeteer. Um, so it made me want to write a story about puppeteers. And, and, and I may get around to doing that. I haven't started doing it. I've started doing research. But that's just an example of how something will, will take hold of me. Another thing I do is I just put everything I love at the time into a story and try to make it work. So when I was writing In the Wild Light, um, I wanted to write a story that had similar relationships and connections as um, two of my favorite movies, formative movies for me, Dead Poet Society and Goodwill Hunting. So I wanted that. Um, I was kayaking a lot at the time. I still am. Um, and I wanted to put that into a book somehow. I was reading a lot of poetry at the time and loving that. So I wanted to put that into a book somehow. Um, I have always loved boarding school stories like Dead Poets mm. Society, like yep. Looking for Alaska. Those those stories have a particular power for me. So I wanted to put that in a book. So all of these things that we've got, kayaking, poetry, Dead Poets Society, Goodwill Hunting, Looking for Alaska, how do I put them all in a book? Well, it's in the wildlife. There you go. It's a, it's a referendum on everything I love at the time. Yeah, I noticed on your Goodreads profile for in the wildlife, you do have a post there about what do I love and how that, yeah, that's how every story starts. It's me asking what, what do I love? Who do I love? Right. And and the answer to that becomes the story. You're going into submission for an adult novel. How did that transition come about? Mm -hmm. To, to, to be honest, I had said everything I had in me for young adults for a while. Um, and, and I just had a story to tell about adults and to, to to tell a story about adults, you have to write an adult book. You can't you can't market a book about adults to to the young to the YA audience. Now, 
YAs read books written for adults and, and about adults, right? But they're not marketed as young adult books. They're marketed as adult books and whoever goes in and buys them, whoever. It's just like how adults buy YA books, even though they're not marketed to adults. So to, to write a book about adults who have adult problems and deal with the things I wanted to write about, I had to write an adult book. So that's what happened. Has your son read your books? No, he hasn't. Um, he's he's 13. He's a little on the young side. Plus, they're not really what he reads. He reads a lot of comics. He's a big Marvel and DC fan. So he he reads a lot of comic books, hasn't read my books, which, you know, that's fine. He's he he reads what he reads, and that's great. I'm I'm happy that he's finding his own way through the world as a reader. That makes me happy. Right. We we can't force our children to read our books. <laughs> exactly. What were you like as a kid? I was, I was really, really different from other kids. I had my, my fascinations, my obsessions, and I would, would pursue those fascinations and obsessions. And they never lined up with the obsessions and fascinations of, of my classmates, um, you know, be it new kids on the block or guns and roses, you know, or, or, you know, Beverly Hills, 90210. Like I didn't share any of those. You know, I was interested in whales and Vikings and, um, you know, so I would I would pursue those 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 obsessions and fascinations. And so, you know, I really just kind of didn't care much um, what was what was going on culturally among teenagers at the time. So I was kind of a lonely kid. I was a bit of a, an outcast, bit of a misfit, which is why um, there's such an affinity and affection for misfits and outcasts mm -hmm. in my books, because I'm I'm writing for those kids like me who who needed to see that who needed to know that that they were fine they weren't weirdos they were just different. From the feedback that you received from readers, which one had the most impact on you? I I have had readers tell me that they rekindled relationships with with parents with family members that have been you know basically dead and buried um for years and years at a time i've had people tell me that my books saved their lives during a dark period that's all very meaningful um i have a reader who is in a creative writing program in college because of my books which is just extraordinarily meaningful um i mean all that stuff is really cool but just just to move a reader for for the time that they're reading a book that's so meaningful to me really really is uh, an honor. Do you feel that it adds pressure to you to live up to those kinds of standards and sure, expectations? But, but I think, sure, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I like having pressure to, to perform and to succeed and to, to meet expectations and exceed expectations and outdo myself. I like having that. Um, I don't want to get lazy, uh, and write, write bad stories. And, you know, um, as long as I have a day job, I'm, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to put out a book that I don't think is a five-star book. I, I just won't. I don't need to. I don't need to do it to pay the rent. Um, so you you can be assured if you see a book of mine coming out that I'm, I'm willing to, uh, to allow to be published that I think it's a five-star book. You may disagree, and that's fine. I don't <laughs> expect everybody to think my, my books are amazing. You may disagree. No problem. Um, but but it means that I think it's the best book that I can write at that time. I will never pu publish a book that I don't think is the best book I had available to me at the time. 
How do you balance your day job with writing and family and getting out in nature? It seems like your plate is full. By writing on my phone on the bus to and from work. Yeah. I mean, that's how I did do it. Now I just grab every scrap of time I can. And uh, I'm going to ask this terrible, terrible question. Who's your favorite character that you've created? Probably Cash Pruitt from In the Wild Light. I think he's sort of the culmination of of everything I I want in a character. Um, he's he is kind. He's loving. He's intelligent. Um, he's empathetic. Um, he is he's imperfect. I think in good ways where he 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 is humble to the point that he doubts himself. Um, which I think is, I think it can be a healthy thing. So I, I'd say it's probably cash, but you, you know, that's like uh, asking asking me to pick a favorite child, or you know, cash is a little closer to who I am, and and so I have a natural affinity for him. But I I love all those characters. Are you allowed to talk about your? upcoming novel that you just sold or is it under wrapped like sure yeah um it is a uh it's a novel in verse so one thing i do is i sometimes will try to write something in a book and and i don't say everything i need to say so in the wild light turns out that was just the beginning of the poetry and i had a lot more poetry in me so i got together with another ya author friend Brittany cavallero who's done the charlotte holmes series who's she's an amazing poet like multi she's published multiple volumes of public uh, uh volumes of poetry through real poetry publishers she's an incredible poet teaches poetry at an elite private school just like dr adkins and in the wild light and we um co-wrote a verse novel so that's the one that will um, be coming out in summer of 2024. So I'm really excited about that. And the other thing that I didn't quite get out of my system in, in the wildlife was, was food. And so the adult book that I'm um, going to be taking on submission here in a few days um, centers around a restaurant in uh, a Southern farm to table restaurant. So that's that's what I got coming, hopefully. The creative process is is so amazing. Like you never know who's gonna start whispering in your ear and what's gonna come from the next thing, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, soul crushing. Just you're <laughs> I, I can't say it enough. You are a you're a beautiful writer. Um I love having the books on my on my shelf, my inspiration shelf for like authors I want to learn how to write like when I grow up. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. This was a lovely conversation. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of What Were You Thinking? You can learn more about Jeff by visiting his website, jeffzentnerbooks.com, and you can buy his books wherever books are sold. Thanks for giving me your ears once again. And if you enjoy this podcast, I would love it if you would take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Also, you can support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash WWYT. Happy reading. Did you ever imagine that you would have penned? Now you're six books in, right? Seven.
Um, six, uh, yeah, six books in. No, I, I would never, never imagine that. Not in a million years. It generates butterflies in my stomach, and that goes to tickles in my spine, and that creates goose pimples, and then that penetrates my mind, and then the, the whole big bang explosion. 